As I mentioned in my prayer, we are in Jeremiah. So, uh, the second of the major prophets. We talked last week a, just a little bit overview about the prophets, the major and the minor prophets. And if there was a, another category, you know, there uh, in, in our culture today, there's models and there's supermodels. Uh, Jeremiah would be the major, major prophet uh, because he is the majorest of all the major prophets. He is the longest uh, prophet that we have in the Old Testament. Not only that, but there are, we probably know more about Jeremiah than we do any of the other prophets because Jeremiah uh, talks about himself and some of the struggles that he goes through and of course we see the call of God upon his life and so we learn a lot about Jeremiah from his writings uh, and the longest prophet he's the one who uh, uses a lot of illustrations in uh, the the messages that God has given to him we're gonna spend some time tonight actually flipping through and looking at all of these now again as I've told you since the very beginning last way back in January uh, I understand this is not an exhaustive study of each book of the Bible we just don't have the time to do that uh, but hopefully it'll just give you a, a really good overview. So we're going to spend most of our time in Jeremiah. I told you tonight, Jeremiah and Lamentations. We're going to spend most of our time in Jeremiah. I'm just going to give you a brief outline for Lamentations at the end. Uh, so Jeremiah is actually, if you, uh, I know I told you to turn to Jeremiah, but turn back to 2 Kings. Uh, if you look at 2 Kings, just turn to chapter 22. So, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, it says in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, and the daughter of Adiah and Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshalam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. So he tells them to go to this high priest, Hilkiah. Okay, now turn over to Jeremiah chapter 1. So actually 2 Kings chapters 22 through 25, most people think that that covers the uh, ministry of Jeremiah there in 2 Kings. So if you want the historical background as to when Jeremiah wrote, read those three chapters. But if you come here to Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 1, the words of Jeremiah the son of Hilkiah of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. There are many Bible scholars that believe that the Hilkiah that we see here in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 1 is the same Hilkiah that we we see in 2 Kings chapter 22 verse whatever that is 4 when the king Josiah tells them to go to the high priest Hilkiah so they believe that Jeremiah is the son 
of the high priest when Josiah was first named king over the nation. So uh, you can see if that is the case that Jeremiah has a strong family background in the things of the Lord. And he, if, if Hilkiah was his father, and that's the same Hilkiah that we see in 2 Kings chapter 22, his dad was the high priest. And he's the. And you can assume that Jeremiah was trained up in the ways of his father. He was trained up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, he was trained up to follow the Lord with all of his heart and to be devoted to the Lord. So we come here in... Um, Chapter 1 of Jeremiah, the, sons of, the, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. So here he makes reference to Josiah. 2 Kings chapter 22, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign in Judah. And of course, his ministry spans from Josiah through Josiah's son, when Josiah's son becomes king, all the way up to, he says, carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth, in, in the fifth month. <laughs> So we talked last week and we said that there's those groups of prophets, they were the pre-exilic prophets, those are the ones who spoke saying, hey, calamity is coming, God wants you to repent, uh, turn from your ways. Uh, and so Jeremiah falls into that. And he's also ministers a little bit during the exile as well. So when they come and they're taken into captivity, uh, Jeremiah is ministering a little bit at that point too. I, don't, I know you guys, uh, from what we just talked about earlier, you guys do not listen to anything I say. But those of you that remember, maybe about a year ago, I, pre I preached in church. And I preached from Jeremiah chapter 1. And I talked about the call of God on our lives. I know you don't remember any of that. That was almost a year ago. So I'm not holding you to remembering anything that I said a year ago. In verse 4, though, he says this, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I, adored, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am, the, I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord." Okay, so here in Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah's call. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I set you aside, even from that point, to be a prophet, uh, to be one who was going to speak for me. And here in this call of Jeremiah, we see it several different places with Moses, Gideon, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and here in Jeremiah, this call that God has. It always begins in all these instances, there's the call from God that goes out and says, I've consecrated you, I've set you aside, I have a special task for you. Then there is the commission where God says specifically what he wants them to do. And then in all these examples, we have the response of the individual, which, if you remember, Moses, here in Jeremiah, uh, they all said, I don't know about this. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if you got the right guy. I think maybe you picked the wrong, wrong guy for, for this mission. Okay? And then uh, ultimately God concludes with promises that he's going to protect him. And 
uh, Pastor Hightower this morning in church was talking about that, that personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, Moses asked God, he says, when I go to Egypt and uh, tell them, you know, God wants you to come out and we're going to take you out of the land of the Egyptians, he says, who do I say sent me? And God responds with that holy name. He says, tell them I am whom I am. And when you read it here in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, God says to Jeremiah, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you. That's that person. God says, I am with you in a very personal way. Even today, God is saying, I am with you. And we know that because Jesus said, if, when I go away, I'm going to send the helper who is going to be with you. So we walk today as believers knowing that I am is with me. And so I do not have to be afraid because I am is with me to deliver me, says the Lord. And then he concludes there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is oh. Yahweh again. Yes, he says, I am whom I am says, I am. Okay? And so he's just reiterating that for them. Now, uh, he calls Jeremiah here. Jeremiah, uh, remember I told you last week, any name that ends in that I-A-H is actually that personal name of God, Yahweh. And so his name actually means that Yahweh appoints, or Yahweh calls, or uh, Yahweh lifts up, Yahweh... Uh, uh, whatever term you want to use there, that he calls, he, he sets apart, he lifts up, he exalts. And that's what Jeremiah's name means, that the Yahweh, the personal God, is the one who has called me and has lifted me up. He's known as, does anybody know what he's known as? What kind of prophet? He's known as the weeping prophet. Because Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations, uh, which is, you know what the word lament means. It means loud crying. And uh, oftentimes in Jeremiah, he is weeping over Israel. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He's saddened that they have turned their back on God. In Jeremiah, there's uh, some recurring themes that we see throughout Jeremiah. Number one is Judah. Over and over again, he is talking to the people of Judah. And he's talking to them about their captivity and restoration. And there's sometimes a progression that we see when uh, Jeremiah is talking to Judah. And he's talking to them, first of all, about, about the fact that they are chosen. He tells them numerous times that you are God's people. That he chose you. That he selected you. Uh, I was talking in chapel at school probably a few weeks ago, and I was talking about the idea of being chosen. The, in First Peter, it talks about being elected, that he chose us. And I, I was talking about when I was in sixth grade, at, in recess, at the end of the day, we'd always play touch football. And I would go out, and when I was in sixth grade, I weighed probably about 45 pounds. Okay? I was small, I was slow, I couldn't catch. You know, all probably skills that you need to be a pretty good football player. I had the exact opposite of those. Uh, and so they would, uh, you know, two boys would be captains and they would pick teams and, you know, to get down to me and the tree. And, you know, oftentimes they would try to pick the tree other than me. And, you know, the team that got stuck with me, they're like, hey, uh, you know, why don't you take Shook? And, you know, uh, however, my brother was in the same grade as I. When my brother was captain, 
I had no problems being the first one picked. And he picked me. Every time he was the captain, he always picked me first. And I knew he was going to pick me first. And there was great confidence in that. He didn't pick me because I could run fast. He didn't pick me because I was big. He didn't pick me because I could catch a ball. He picked me because he loved me because I was his brother. Over and over again, God says to his people that I chose you. I chose you out of all the nations of the world. I chose you. Not because you were great, not because you were mighty, not even, you know, God has to say, you have to read between the lines, I didn't even choose you because I knew you'd be obedient uh, and faithful to me. I chose you because I loved you. Okay, So he talks to him about being cho- chosen. He talks to, Jeremiah reiterates to Judah that w- the time's coming in which you're going to be captured. Uh, that you're going to be captured. You're going to be carried away. And then he oftentimes concludes that with the coming Messiah. That one day this is all going to be made right. One day restoration will be experienced finally, fully, and forever. So Judah. Number two, he talks about another recurring theme is the cities. (coughs) Jerusalem, Babylon, Damascus, all those cities are mentioned numerous times throughout the book of Jeremiah. Number three is the nations. Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Elam, and Babylon. And then number four is just the Messiah. And uh, we're going to look here in a little bit just at all those pictures that we have of the Messiah through the book of Jeremiah. Now, I do later on, we have an outline of the book of Jeremiah, but most Bible scholars kind of refrain from using an outline of Jeremiah because it's so... It's not in, Jeremiah isn't written so much in chronological order as it's written kind of in thematic order. So there are things that Jeremiah mentions in Isaiah, or not in Isaiah, Jeremiah mentions in Jeremiah chapter 45 that actually maybe happened at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. And there's things that he mentions maybe in chapter 25 that happened after the things of Jeremiah chapter 45. So it's not really written in chronological order, so it's really hard to pin down a really nice concrete outline but there are many there's as you can see here a list of object lessons that Jeremiah uses Uh, anybody here ever have to do like a children's sermon or anything in church yeah and you always use you always try to use an object lesson you know Uh, I remember the best one I ever did I really played it up all the way before church started. I came in with this container, and everybody would ask me what's in it. And I would say, that inside this container is the deadliest thing in the entire world. And, you know, kids were just talking to other kids. They couldn't under, they, they were trying to figure out. So I got up, and I was doing the children's sermon. And I said, can anybody guess what's in here? They were saying a snake and a spider and all these different things, uh, a scorpion, all these different things. And so I took the lid off, and I pulled out a big old cow's tongue. <laughs> and they all looked at me and I said, this is the deadliest thing in the world because James tells us that uh, the, the tongue is, is one of the hardest things in our life to control. And he talks, he gives the illustration about a huge ship that's just turned by just a little rudder and how the tongue is very similar to that and how a huge forest fire starts with just one spark and he uh, equates that to the tongue. And, and so... Um, 
I'm not really sure where I was going with any of that. Uh, object lessons, yes, thank you. So that is the object lesson that I remember the most, and that's what Jeremiah does in here a lot. He tries to use object lessons to get to truth of what God is saying to the people, to the people, so that they can they have they can have a visual representation of what God's talking about. So we're going to look at all of these. So uh, we're going to just start here at the beginning and turn through Jeremiah and look at each of these. So Jeremiah chapter one, verses eleven through twelve. And because I just don't want to talk the whole time and you don't want to hear me talking all the time, we're going to go around and if anybody wants to read these, that would be just amazing. My mom tells me oftentimes I have a great face for radio. <laughs> what that has to do with my voice, I don't know. But anyways, um, anybody want to read chapter 1 verses 11 and 12? I would. Okay, go ahead. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Okay. So, here he uses an, uh, an almond branch. Now, has anybody here ever grown almonds? No, I didn't think so. Uh, and you kind of have to know the background to understand what this object lesson is about, but God does explain it in verse 12. The almond branch, they say, is the one that always buds first. Okay, People would know that spring was around the corner, not because they turned on the TV and the groundhog saw its shadow or didn't see a shadow. I can never keep those right. But they knew spring was right around the corner because the almond branch would bud first. And they would know that spring is imminent. And so he, he says here, he asked Jeremiah, what do you see? And he said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. So what he's saying here is he's talking, the, the almond branch represents the coming of God's judgment. God is using this almond branch as an illustration to say that judgment is imminent. Okay, just like the almond branch is the first bud and you know that spring is coming, in the same way, in verse 12, the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Okay, verses 13 and 14, he uses a different illustration here uh, in chapter 1. Somebody want to read that? I'll read it. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see boiling pot, <coughs> tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. Okay. So here he sees a boiling pot. And he said it's turned away from the north. So I don't. Uh, I know we were in here for financial peace. And in the video they told me they had us all cover our eyes and point to the north. And I didn't point anyway because I have no idea in this building which direction is north. Uh, I have not yet learned directions. Is that way north? Okay. Okay, so if I had a big boiling pot, a cauldron, and it was turned away from the north, who's getting hit with the boiling water? Yeah, you are. Everybody south of it. Okay, and God again here describes what that means in, in verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. Now, the only problem we have is this. Babylon, we know, ultimately came and took Judah into captivity. 
Babylon is not to the north of Judah, it is to the east of Judah. So God's prophecies are not true, throw the Bible away, it's all false. Because it didn't come from the north, it came from the east. Again, you need to know a little bit about geography. I'm not saying this to make me seem smart, which I really am. Um, <laughs> so Babylon is to the east, Judah's to the west. In between Babylon and Judah is this thing called the Arabian Desert. No army would ever traverse through the desert to conquer Judah. What they would take is what they call the Fertile Crescent. They would go to the, uh, they would go to the north, loop around, and come down from the north to the south. And so even though Babylon is east of Judah, they didn't come from the east. When they came to uh, overthrow Judah, they took that crescent and they came from the north to the south. And so here, God even is depicting to them and so the, the direction of God's judgment. He's telling them the people who are coming to overthrow you, they're going to come from the north, north to the south. That's why he said that this boiling pot is tilted away from the north. If it's tilted away from the north, it means it's going to dump its contents on the south. Okay, turn over to chapter 13. Skipping quite a bit into Jeremiah here. Jeremiah chapter 13. The direction of God's judgment. Okay, good. <laughs> now those two ladies took the nice short ones that were only two verses. Oh, isn't that nice? And that was nice. I think you guys looked ahead and said, hey, I'm going to take that. Anybody want to read chapter 13 verses 1 through... 11. It's kind of a long one. Okay. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought the belt as the Lord directed and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go down to Perath and hide it there in a crevice in the rock. So I went and hid it at Pereth as the Lord told me. Many days later the Lord said to me, Go now to Pereth and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Pereth and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor, but they have not listened. Okay. So here he uses an illustration. Uh, there are some who translate a linen belt. There are some versions that translated a linen sash. Uh, 
actually, uh, Bible scholars believe what it is probably was was not really a belt on the outs to wear on the outside of your garments because when he talks about it was similar where he called the nation to himself and held them close that it was probably some sort of undergarment that the, that they would wear okay so they say sash probably isn't the right term maybe a belt's not the right term but anyways in either case it's it's a linen cloth that he was to wear and he wore it and God tells him do not let it touch water and uh, uh she read out of the King James Version, and I believe it says Perth, and they actually believe that that was along the river Euphrates. In the New King James Version, it actually translates it Euphrates. Now, Euphrates is a pretty big river, right? This sash, this belt, this undergarment was not to touch water, but yet he tells Jeremiah to go and hide it in the rocks along the river. Do you think it's going to get wet? Yeah, absolutely. Then he tells him to go back and get it. Now, there are actually some people who say that this this didn't this was more of an analogy that it didn't physically actually happen. I, I tend to believe because the way it's written that it actually happened that Jeremiah actually went and did these things that God told him to do. So he goes back to the rocks, he pulls it out and it's good for nothing because it probably got wet and now it is completely destroyed. God then explains, he said, this is like my people that I held close to me. But in their pride and in their arrogance, they have rejected me. They've followed after false god. They've, they've uh, fallen into idolatry. And now they are good for nothing. Jesus had a very similar parable, right? He says, if salt has lost its flavor, what good is it except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot? And he uses that for us as believers that if we've, we're called to be the salt of the earth, we're called to be the light of the world. Uh, and, and if we fail to do that, then ultimately, what good are we to the kingdom? Here, in the same way, God said they have defiled themselves with these things, and they've followed after idols, and they've rejected me. And so, here in this uh, illustration, we see the reason of God's judgment. So he explains to them why they're going to fall into his judgment. Okay? If you, uh, verses 12 through 14. Everybody holding off there to get to the next short one. Uh, somebody want to read that? For you shall speak to them this word that says the Lord God of Israel every bottle shall be filled with wine and they will say to you do not we do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine then you shall say to them thus says the lord behold i will fill all the inhabitants of this land even the kings who sit on david's throne the priests the prophets and all the inhabitants of jerusalem with drunkenness and I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but will destroy them. Okay, so this is the illustration of the wine bottles. And uh, it speaks to the calamity of God's judgment. He said, just as you fill up these bottles, I'm going to fill up the nation with calamity. And... Fathers and sons, uh, uh, 
together and he says I'm not going to have pity on them I'm not going to spare them so it's the idea that God's wrath the God's judgment is going to be filled up to the brim just like these bottles were filled up okay over to chapter 14 back to another long one verses 1 through 12 Yahweh that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn, because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail, because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Yahweh, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you hope for, of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save us? Yet you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says Yahweh concerning his people, They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore Yahweh does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Yahweh said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. All right. Uh, actually, in verse 13, he goes on and says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So God said one thing's going to happen. Jeremiah pleads for the people. God says, Well, it's really too late for them. Jeremiah responds by saying, but there's other people running around saying that this drought's not going to happen. This calamity's not going to befall us. Uh, and of course, uh, in verse 14, the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. And so what we have here is in these droughts, we see the authentic authentication of God's judgment. God said, listen, what I've said is going to happen, even though everybody's telling you it's not going to happen, the droughts are going to be a sign of this, but eventually my judgment is going to come. So God's authenticating uh, the message that he has. If you turn over to Jeremiah chapter 18, we see the illustration of the potter's vessel. Somebody want to read verses 1 through 6? The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, 
as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Okay, so God uses this illustration just as the potter can take that lump of clay and mold it into whatever he wants because he's the potter. God says, can I not do the same with you? And so here we see the, the, uh, the purposes of God's judgment. God has a purpose for them. He said, I'm going to mold you and shape you in the ways that I want. And he's going to use this judgment to do it. I think I've mentioned this before, but they go into captivity. And one of the biggest things God calls them out on is their idolatry, right? He takes them to Babylon, which at the time is the heart of false worship. I mean, in Revelation, he talks about the new Babylon is going to come. And uh, so there is, you can worship any false god in Babylon of this day that you wanted to worship. The sun god, the moon god, the fertility god, they're all there. So he has a problem with them because they're worshiping false gods. They're, they're practicing idolatry. He takes them to the capital of idolatry. And when they come back after captivity, nowhere else through the history of Israel... In the scriptures, do we see them ever having a problem with idolatry again? Now, they had some other issues when Jesus shows up, but it wasn't because they were worshiping false gods. Okay, so God used this. The purpose, I believe, the purpose of his, of his judgment on, this, on them at this point is to convince them and show them the error of uh, idol worship. Okay, going on to chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen bottle, and take of the ancients of the people and of the ancients of the priests, and go forth into the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell you. Okay. So here he takes this uh, vessel and he's to go and... Uh, Actually, it uh, gets broken there. It's a broken vessel. And they, they believe that it's a, a uh, narrow-necked bottle and very easy to break. And once it gets broken, you cannot actually repair it. And so what it says here is talking about the certainty of God's judgment. It is coming. It is certain. And there is no turning back at this point. Over to Jeremiah chapter 24. Verses 1 through 10. Actually, it's the whole chapter. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set up before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive. Jeconiah and his son Jehoiakim, king of Judah and the Ju prince of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs like the figs that are first ripe and the other basket had very bad figs which could not be eaten. They were so bad. 
Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely, thus says the Lord, I, so I will give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his prince, the residue of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse, in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they are consumed in the land that I gave them and their fathers. Okay, two baskets of figs. One's pretty good, one's pretty bad. The good ones represent the people that he has taken into captivity. And he said, they will come back. Notice the certainty of what he says. He doesn't say, if they come back. He doesn't say, if they return to me. If they decide to worship me again. He's pretty certain. He said, this good basket that I have, they're going to come back. They're going to worship me with all their heart. They're, I'm going to bring them back into the land. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. And in the bad ones, they're pretty bad. And they are not coming back. They are going to be destroyed. They're going to be thrown out just like you would throw out bad figs that you can't eat. Uh, they are not going to return. Uh, they are going to be cast out. And so here we focus on actually the good part of it, and that's the reconciliation of God's judgment. He said there, are, there, are, there is that remnant. They are going to come back. They're going to be reconciled to me. Yes, the nation has erred, but after a time they're going to come back. And we're going to restore, we're going to reconcile this relationship with one another. Okay, going on to chapter 27. Uh, probably don't need to read all 12 verses. Uh, just read uh, 1 through 5. Go ahead. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus Yahweh said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth 
with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Okay. So here, of course, the idea of a yoke uh, is the idea of submission. So the submission of God's judgment. So it was a, uh, an illustration to show that even through God's judgment, uh, it is done to show, people, show the people that God is the one who is in charge and their submission to Him. And again, speaking back to uh, chronological order, you see in chapter 24, we saw that after chapter 24, he was using an illustration after they had already been taken out of the land. In chapter 27, this is before they're taken out of the land. So you can see that it's not always written in chronological order. Over to chapter 32. Somebody out there is excited. <clears throat> Chapter 32, verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is yours, and a redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed it out to him, the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both with that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So what he's done here, he's gone and he's bought, bought a field that actually belonged to his family. He's purchased it and it is the idea of the restoration of God's judgment. Just like Jeremiah went and bought this field, so too God has gone and purchased his people in order to restore them back into the land. Turn over to chapter 43. Making our way through Jeremiah here. So I want to read those verses 9 through 13. Actually, begin in verse 8 if you want. Take in your hand large stones and hide them in the mortar and the pavement that is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace. And the things, I don't know what they in the sight of the men of Judah, and say to them, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above those stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence to captivity, those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword, those who are doomed to the sword. Down to 13. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, 
and he shall go away from there <coughs> in peace. He shall break the abyss of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he will burn with fire. Okay. I don't know if you've ever been here. When I say when you come across those names that you're not really sure how to pronounce, you just fly right through them like I do. Yeah. Because nobody knows how, else knows how to pronounce them. And if you just fly right through them, people are like, oh, so that's how you say that word. I never knew that. You just, yeah, they just, they, yeah. You just pretend like you know how you say them. And, yeah. Uh, so here he talks about these stones. He says, hide them in Egypt. And one day Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and he's going to set up his tent right over these stones. Uh, it shows the extent of God's judgment. But there are some people from Judah that were going to travel to Egypt so that they wouldn't have to face God's judgment. It says, oh, it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, you know, my arm stretches uh, as far as it needs to stretch in order to uh, bring about you and bring you into captivity. Uh, Jonah found this out firsthand, didn't he? <laughs> he yeah. thought I could get on a ship and go the opposite direction, and God found him. All right, then finally, in chapter 51... Verses 59 through 64. There's some good names in that one. Anybody want to read it? <laughs> Just scared everybody from reading it. I'll give it a go. Okay. The word that Jeremiah, the prophet... Yeah, sorry. The word that Jeremiah, the prophet, commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, when he went to Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon, in the fourth year of his reign... Sariah was the quartermaster. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words. And say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it, into the midst of the Euphrates and say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Okay. This whole time, Jeremiah has been telling the people, Babylon's coming to get you. Here at the end of the book, Jeremiah says, God's coming to get Babylon. <laughs> Uh, and we see this oftentimes that the nations that God used to uh, discipline his people, God ends up disciplining them for disciplining his people. <laughs> okay? Uh, and that's exactly what happens here. He says, just as that, you tie that scroll up and drop it in the river, and just as it sinks to the bottom of the river, Babylon is going to sink and rise no more. Uh, and so I actually wrote here the retaliation of God's judgment. Uh, God says, these people are not going to get away treating my people harshly. They're going to they're experience retaliation for it. All right, uh, flipping over. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of Jeremiah. And we are going to this time, as we peruse through very quickly, we're going to look at Jeremiah's pictures of the Christ. All right, in Jeremiah 2.13. Is that right? <coughs> yeah. 
For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then secondly, they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, a lot of people think that the Bible is uh, uh, sexist somehow, that all it ever talks about is the brethren. But here he talks about the cistern as well. <laughs> Not just the brethren. I had to find a way to throw that joke in there. The brethren and the cistern. So here we see a picture of Christ as the living water. Remember Jesus comes to the well with the Samaritan woman and he said, uh, I have water that is living water that out of you will spring, uh, will, will bring forth living water. Okay, so there we see uh, a picture of Christ. If you turn over to 8, chapter 8, verse 22. There is no balm in Gilead. There is there no physician there. Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? And so here we see the coming of the great physician. He's the one who's going to come and heal his people. Over to chapter 23, verse 4. Well, let me begin in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor they, shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So here he talks about the coming of the great, uh, of, of the good shepherd. Jump down to verse 5 then. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And so here we see the righteous branch. He is the one who, remember, he comes out of the stump, the root of Jesse. And then in 23, verse 6, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So he is the righteous Savior in chapter 23, verse 6. Turn over to chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, we know he's not talking about David, David, right? So here we see the Davidic king. That one day this king from the line of David is going to be raised up uh, for them to rule over them, the Davidic king. And then in chapter 50, verse 34...
The Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. So here we see him as the Redeemer. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 31. It would be a tremendous disservice to Pastor Jeremy if we did not look at the New Covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. (laughs) Chapter 31, verse 31, uh, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Some aspects of this new covenant, he says, now, they, they, the old covenant is obsolete. You know, we've heard several sermons on this. It's obsolete. The people couldn't hold up their end of the covenant, their, their end of the agreement. So God says, I'm going to bring a new covenant. The first aspect of this new covenant is that it is an eternal covenant. He says in verse 31, Well, 31, he talks about this new covenant, not according to the covenant uh, that I made with their fathers, that I took them out of the hand. Uh, And then in, uh, he says over and over again that this is the covenant that I am making with the people. So it's an eternal covenant. Number two, the new covenant is an internal covenant. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This, the old covenant was written on stone tablets. This new covenant is going to be written on the hearts and the minds of the people. Next, the new covenant is an inclusive covenant. No more inclusive. It's an inclusive covenant. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Now, a lot of people say that uh, Christianity is, you know, narrow-minded and it's exclusive. Christianity is the only religion where we say, whoever will. Come unto me. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care about your skin color. I don't care about your socioeconomic status. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care how many good deeds you do. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. It's an inclusive covenant. And then uh, I could not think of a last word because I was trying to go with all vowels here uh, because, as you can see, I put the and instead of uh. But this new covenant is a forgiving covenant. I couldn't think of a word began with a a, a vowel there. So anyways, uh, he says at the end there, he says, for I will remember their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The old covenant, the sin was just covered over for another year. The new covenant says, I'm not even going to remember it any longer. All right, now a very quick brief outline of Jeremiah. 
we begin with the introduction, which is the call of Jeremiah. And we looked at that a little bit there at the beginning. Chapters 2 through 33 is a national message. It is the message, messages to Judah. So in those chapters, he's, for the most part, talking about Judah, what's going to happen to them, uh, how he's trying to get them to turn the ship around. Number three is personal in nature, and that talks about Jeremiah's suffering. Jeremiah had a pretty tough go at it. He was <laughs> like uh, John the Baptist. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. Nobody was listening to him uh, and just all the things that befell him being the person he was during the time in which he lived. Number four is an international message. That is the messages to the nations. And that's where we saw, of course, 51. We concluded, and he was talking about how Babylon's going to sink and rise no more. And then Roman numeral five is, Jeremiah, is the conclusion. That's Jeremiah's captivity and release. He uh, is either taken or goes to Egypt. Tradition says one of two things happened to him. One tradition says that while he's in Egypt, that uh, actually the Jews that are in Egypt with him stone him and kill him. There's another tradition that says that either he fled or he was taken ultimately to Babylon from Egypt, and he ultimately died there just the Lord took him home. Uh, but in either case, he, he uh, is taken captive and uh, we see the ultimate release when Jehoiachin is released as well. Okay, so uh, that is all of Jeremiah. And as you look at your watch, you say we have no time to look at Lamentations. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. Uh, but very quickly. Uh, just a brief outline there. Number one is the faithful God and the fallen city of chapter one. Uh, Roman number two is the sovereign God and the suffering people. So God is sovereign. Uh, even in our hardships and difficulties, God is sovereign even over all of those things. Number three, the comforting God and the afflicted people. Roman number four is chapter four, the compassionate God and the corrupted people. And then Roman numeral five is the eternal God and the praying people. The, the number five, uh, the eternal God and the praying people. Yeah.
Yes. Back on page one, mm -hmm. Jeremiah 14, 1 